Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Welcome, my name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devsich. How you going Mark? Very well Chris. It was Discovery's first month investing in October. Talk us through what you've seen. Equity markets rebounded in October. It was pleasing we got off to a strong start, being up 7% versus the benchmark of 3.1% in Kiwi dollar terms. However, we take a long-term approach to investing in businesses and don't get overly focused on short-term performance. It's important to note that we've adopted a prudent approach to deploying capital, ending the month with over 30% cash. With markets changing faster than British Prime Ministers, there's a bit of nervousness out there. Talk us through how this is influencing Discovery's approach to investing. Well, we've emphasised being very selective and deploying capital, and we've actually got less companies in the portfolio than we typically would right now. And the volatility is breeding opportunity, and the market is throwing up a lot of opportunity currently. A lot of the macro headlines that we're seeing, to be honest, they're just irrelevant to the long-term success of our businesses. And that's despite the market and the media overly focusing on them. The skill is just knowing when to lean into the uncertainty as it is more than reflected in the valuations we are paying. We've invested in a handful of companies with high returns on invested capital, which we believe can surprise to the upside, regardless of the broader market. And one of those companies is Hub24. They reported a quarterly update during the month. How do you think it went, Chris? Yeah, look, Hub reported a strong set of numbers. To put something in context, Hub24 is an Australian investment and superannuation platform. Hub's platform provides financial advisors with the tools they need to onboard, manage, and report to their clients. From just 0.2% market share in 2015, Hub has grown to over 5% market share today. Hub's key metrics are twofold, fund flows onto the platform and the number of advisors joining the platform. Both surprised to the upside with Hub adding over $3 billion of flows during the quarter and advisors number growing at over 18% per annum. What were your sort of thoughts on the quarterly? Yeah, I think it was interesting that Hub actually beat NetWealth for the first time on their quarterly flows. So they've been encroaching on them for quite some time, but it's the first time they actually overtook them. Now, both NetWealth and Hub are taking large share from the incumbent uh, bank platforms and they're dominating net flows into the industry. For example, if you look at NetWealth, they've taken 45% of the, the net industry flows in the last 12 months. So both players are doing very well right now. I think you touched on a great point there. Both Hub and NetWealth have been fitting from two trends. Sort of first, banks exiting the wealth management space, and secondly, the rise of managed accounts. While the first is well covered, you know, probably think that the rise of managed accounts has been a bit overlooked by investors. In my view, sort of Royal Commission has increased the compliance burden on advisors. This has forced advisors to find solutions to run their businesses more efficiently, and managed accounts is one of those solutions. To put it simply, managed accounts allow advisors to outsource the investment side of advice to professional portfolio managers. That's been estimated to save advisors about 13 hours a week. And it's not surprising that flows onto managed accounts have tripled in the last three years. Hub's the leader in managed accounts. 
And whilst managed accounts only account for 13% of the industry, they're over 44% of HUD's funds under management. We had a conversation with a leading provider of managed accounts last week. What were your takeaways? Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. So this provider, their platforms appear on uh, the, the platforms like Hub24 and, and NetWealth, and, and they're seeing extreme growth in their funds under management as well. So one of the interesting statistics that they gave us from a survey was the number of advisors in 2015, 49% of them were thinking or currently using managed accounts. And you fast forward to today, that number has increased to 72% are actually um, thinking or actually using managed accounts. So there's been a big uptake. But the, the other key point was that a lot of advisors are just at the beginning of their journey in adopting managed accounts. So they either just dip their toe in the water, using it on some of their um, book, and they can roll it out further, or they just um, haven't even started yet. So there's a long runway ahead, and that's going to be very positive for the likes of Hub24 and NetWealth. Yeah, not, not everything goes to, goes to plan uh, for the month, and one of the detractors was Pinnacle. So what did Pinnacle do? Well, they own a minority stake in 15 boutique fund managers. They provide distribution, infrastructure, and support services to these managers. Pinnacle is a company we've actually followed for a long time. It's led by the founder, Ian McCowan. They've got a strong track record of organic growth. They've grown that from $1 billion in 2006 to over $80 billion today. So what actually happened? Well, they put out a quarterly funds under management number, and it was a little bit disappointing, to be honest. The tough markets resulted in funds under management dropping by $3.2 billion. And within this, there was a uh, outflow of $1.2 billion. And that largely came from some large institutional outflows. There's a bit of a a nuance to this, and I think you've got some insights here, Chris. I believe you probably need to dive a bit deeper into what's occurring here. Gross flows are important, but on the face of it can be misleading. It's the composition of money under management that's the key. And in short, it, it, the question you need to ask yourself, is it high margin or low margin money? Pinnacle demonstrated that last year. So in FY22, money under management dropped 6%. However, the June revenue run rate uh, exited at over 20% growth. You know, This occurred as Pinnacle replaced low margin sort of super fund money uh, with higher margin inflows into offshore and private strategies. The first quarter just simply saw a continuation of that pattern from last year. Despite flows being down, management noted that there'd been a negligible impact on revenue. Yeah, that, that's an interesting observation. And uh, I agree that that trend's going to continue. And what we do see across the board, whether it's fund managers or um, even the platforms that are impacted, when there is volatility in markets, investors tend to sit on their hands and advisors don't allocate as much. And then when that volatility goes away, you see the, the flows ramp back up. And this is what provides the opportunity for Pinnacle right now. Their stock price is more than halved in the last 12 months. And you need to be a bit contrarian when you buy these assets. It's, it's worth buying them when they're out of favour and sentiment is poor rather than when everything's going well. Hub and Pinnacle were just two of over 100 meetings we had in October uh, with companies and industry experts. We received a lot of feedback from the front line and it's probably worth sharing some of that. What do you think was the most consistent theme from our meetings this last month? The most common theme has been uh, the persistent inflation. This is what management teams have been talking to us in, in nearly every meeting and predominantly across wages. 
So the wages are the largest cost for most businesses, and whether it's a business like Domino's Pizza, which has got a large operation in Germany, their minimum wages have actually gone up 25% this year, and 14% of that increase is coming in October. So it's very difficult to deal with, especially for their franchisees, as they're running tight margins to start with. And this wage inflation is really a global thematic here. Uh, in Australia, a lot of the companies we're chatting to are seeing 5 to 10% wage inflation. That's right across, you know, whether retailers, manufacturing, or in the tech sector. Now, a lot of the borders are, are reopening around the world, and in Australia, we've actually seen the permanent immigration cap increase recently from 160,000 to 195,000. So you'd hope as immigration returns to Australia, this relieves some of the, the wage inflation. However, it's the big pinch point for company management teams right now and also what central banks are most concerned with when they're trying to uh, ease um, inflation around the world. Wage inflation spirals are the main thing they're focusing on. A lot of companies talk about the ability to pass on prices, but it's the nuance of what speed can they pass on the price rise and what quantum are they able to achieve? We're cognizant that a lot of feedback from the front line is what you know management is seeing right now, and some of that has a short shelf life. However, at times, it's possible to discern longer-term impacts if you're thoughtful about it. And one of those probably worth calling out is sort of lower footfall in CBD traffic due to work from home. I mean, do you think that's a COVID hangover, or do you think it recovers quickly? I think it's a it's an interesting observation, and. I think it's actually more structural now. Um, yeah, if, if we think to our own uh, day-to-day lives in our office building, which is you know true C-grade uh, office on on the CBD fringe, lack, lack of natural light. Uh, but the uh, our fellow tenants, they only come in one day a week, and they're working from home the rest of the week. And that's something that's not that unusual these days. And the foot traffic to CBD areas is. I think permanently reduced. Um, we're just not going to see as many people show up every single day of the week, and this is going to mean there's some um, structural changes to to how businesses operate, especially if they're more customer facing and rely on foot traffic. Agreed. So, conclusion: work from home is here to stay. You know, nothing, nothing is shattering there. I guess, but we believe. Certain companies with large or important CBD footprints probably haven't adjusted to the new reality yet. Uh, you know, it's important to remember the 80-20 rule in life. You know, sort of 80 percent of profits generally come from 20 percent of people or stores. And applied to this case, is a number of companies with large or important CBD store networks. And what what investors appear to have overlooked is that sort of prior to COVID, perhaps 80 percent of the profits were being produced by the CBD stores due to their ability to quickly get above their fixed costs. You know, will that recover post-COVID? Well, it hasn't yet, and we're probably taking the view that um, that it won't. This is probably the most exciting part of our show. Leaders and laggards from the ASX this month. What do you have for us, Mark? Do you have a leader or a laggard? I've got a leader, and it's actually a decent leader. It's up triple digits percentage gain this month. So what is it? It's Almo. Almo is a founder-led HR software company that has operations in Australia and the UK. And it's grown substantially through a mix of acquisitions and consistent organic growth. So what happened during the month? Well, it received a takeover bid at $4.85 from a firm called K1 Investment Management. They're a software investment firm based in California. 
So prior to the bid, it was actually trading at a very depressed level at around $2, which was the same price at IPO at more than five years ago. Unfortunately, we didn't have a position and it would have been nice because that would have uh, been some great short-term gains. I'm sure, I'm sure our most shareholders are tickled by uh, the bid. You know, do you think there'll be another one? I think, I think there could be actually because what we've seen in the press is that KKR actually made another bid for the business uh, earlier on in the year or um, they were, if they didn't make a bid, they were extremely close to. And those discussions were at $6.10. And why it makes sense for KKR to to buy Elmo is they actually have another business that is very similar in Australia called Human Force. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me to see a bidding war up for Elmo and um, maybe another player come into the mix and uh, submit a counter bid. Yeah, you've got to admire P's timing here. You know, they pounce when companies are less than 12 months away from free cash flow break even. I guess, you know, recent example, recent examples, Almo, as you called out, Tyro, Nitro, um, you know, at that stage, shareholders have, have paid for the investment to be de-risked. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. Like PE uh, take these longer term timeframes and they end up buying these assets at uh, good prices from uh, impatient public market investors. And, and, and yeah, to put this in context, there's been a flurry of bids from other or of other ASX enterprise software businesses recently. We've had Nearmap, Nitro, PushPay, Tyro, Pay Group, uh, which is also a payroll HR solutions provider. They've all been um, bid for or, or currently in the process, and it's probably not a surprise given that the ASX or Tech Technology Index is down 34% year to date. So there's likely to be more bids come. As sentiment is still currently depressed, a lot of these stocks are out of favour and investors have given up on the sector. And a lot of these companies also have founder shareholders that can um, roll their ownership in, under a um, private equity structure as well. Are there any other ones that you think could be taken out, Chris? I mean, it's always an interesting thought piece. It's important to know discovery, a takeover is an, an investment thesis. Generally, a company only elicits a takeover offer after a significant period of share price underperformance. And we can see that with some of the earlier examples, even post bids, you know, companies like Nitro, you know, still trading 50% lower than where they were 12 months ago. The point being that if a takeover doesn't eventuate, your returns can be poor. So we aim to invest in companies which have demonstrated excellence over many years and where we can extrapolate that into the future. That said, it's an interesting thought exercise and there are a couple of likely candidates. In my view, the most likely candidate is Vista Group. Vista is a leading provider of software to the cinema industry globally. It's been an interesting time for Vista. They're at, particularly now as they're at the beginning of a transition from you know taking their customers from on-premise software to the cloud. They had an investor day on the 26th of October and the message coming out it was pretty simple. Longer term, there's more upside, but in the shorter term, it's going to cost more. Why does this make? Why is Vista potentially an attractive takeout target? Well, it's globally dominant. They've got a 52% market share of large cinema circuits ex China. There's no close competitors. In fact, there is a really isn't, isn't any credible competitors. And most importantly, the register's open. There's no blocking stakes. I guess the final point would be you know, 800 employees and sort of around 125 million of revenue this year, potentially there's also some, uh, you know, PE could take some cost out. 
Any that you can think of? Yeah, just on the Kiwi company uh, theme, so a couple of other ones that, that come to mind are uh, E-Rode and Circo. Why do they come to mind? Well, they're companies in the tech sector. Share prices are trading at extremely depressed levels, both of them uh, at 52 or close to 52-week lows. They've got global operations and uh, scalability that a, a private equity firm um, could either bolt on to existing platform they have or roll out um, you know, globally. So we, we think those two um, would be potentially in the sights of a PE as well right now. So mo- moving on to a um, laggard for the month. Chris, what have you brought today? Yeah, well, well let's, let's balance things out. Before I do, you know, maybe it's worth setting the scene. So a study undertaken by Bain and Company in 2014 concluded that founder-led companies are four to five times more likely to be in the top quartile performers and discovery we believe people and founders are doubly important in cyclical businesses you want to take a guess why capital allocation skills are generally magnified in cyclical industries and yeah it's just far more important to have a, a, a really good management team when you're in those cyclical industries exactly give that man a cigar which brings me to my leg up for today mars group Mars is a vertically integrated property, construction, infrastructure business in regional New South Wales and Queensland. In short, Mars is a cyclical business. Mars was founded by in 2002 by former Rabbitohs great Wes Mars. Wes drew down his 14k of life savings to start the business with a single bobcat. Today, Mars has over 1,500 employees. Mars achieved $125 million of EBITDA in FY22 and has guided to 180 to 200 in FY23. Despite the strong guidance, Mars is down 30% this month and has nearly halved in the last two months. Two factors appear to be weighing on the stock. One, flooding in regional New South Wales, including Dubbo, and two, concerns around residential property demand against backdrop of rising interest rates. Both these concerns are valid. However, we believe that both of them are short-term and miss the forest for the trees. The fortunes of Mars are really tied to the wagon of regional infrastructure spend. The pipeline of spend in regional New South Wales and Queensland is substantial over the next three to five years, with inland rail alone forecast to cost $18 billion, and that's likely on the conservative side. At the same time, the property development business remains an underappreciated aspect of the group. What do you think? I think that's entirely right. Like the flooding... Yeah, it is it is a big issue, but it's only a short term issue. And what it's likely to mean is that some of the property settlements get get pushed to the right, and that's just due to delays in completion. Uh, so, although there will be some the timing issues around where the profits are recognised, the structural growth thematics are still there. So, we've got um, strong immigration into the regions. Why is that happening? Well, housing is structurally cheaper in the regions and the cities. We talked about remote working, so you, know, you don't need to actually be in the cities um, as much anymore. The agricultural markets are strong, so that, that's positive for regional areas. So we do think that the structural um, thematics around uh, why Mars is a long-term buy are intact and the flooding is just a short-term issue, really. Yeah, it just extends on the theme we were discussing earlier, right? You know, the current uncertainty provides sophisticated investors with the opportunity to arbitrage short-term negativity. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.